You're listening to a podcast from GUT. Welcome to the GUT podcast. I'm Mary McLean, Senior Lecturer and Consultant in Gastroenterology at Aberdeen University in Scotland, UK, and Education Editor for GUT. This month, I'm discussing the Editor's Choice Manuscript by Andrea Vital entitled Practice Guidelines on the Management of Acute and Chronic Gastrointestinal Problems Arising as a Result of Treatment for Cancer. This is an important issue that we're confronted with often as gastroenterologists, and this paper is a welcome guideline in clinical practice. I'm delighted to be joined by several people today who were all instrumental to the commissioning and creation of this manuscript. Today I'll be talking with Professor Sir Mike Richards, Professor Jane Marr, Professor Jonathan Rhodes and Dr Jarvis Andreev. The guidelines per se will be discussed in detail with Dr Andreev, leading author of the manuscript, later in the podcast. But firstly, we're going to discuss some of the wider issues around the topic. So to begin, I'd like to welcome Professor Sir Mike Richards, National Clinical Director for Cancer and End-of-Life Care and Medical Oncologist. And firstly, can you describe why you believe this topic should be highlighted in this manner? I think this is a hugely important topic. Gastrointestinal problems are common in patients who have had cancer and actually much more common than is often recognized. They can arise both in the acute situation during treatment, but also, perhaps most importantly, it's the chronic problems, um, particularly in people who've had radiotherapy. These problems can really cause misery to patients. That can mean that they can't work, sometimes means they can't travel around, they can even be confined to home. But we do know that a lot can be done to improve their outlook and and resolve their symptoms. Well, you touched on this a little bit, but how do you feel this issue impacts on our society and the UK as a whole, and what are the key priorities in tackling this? In terms of society, we know that uh, survivors, just for example, of bowel cancer itself, uh, are a large group. Um, We estimate there are now getting on for 2 million uh, survivors of cancer uh, in the UK, with bowel cancer being a a large group within that. Um, So there are a lot of people who are suffering from these long-term effects uh, of treatment. What are the main issues, do you think, confronting a cancer survivor today, and how can we as gastroenterologists be actively involved in their care? I think what we do know is that a large number of cancer survivors are doing really very well and living pretty normal lives. But there are a small but not negligible number who are really suffering from the effects of treatment. And what we're not doing well enough at the moment is to identify those patients and to get them to the specialist care they need. So what I want to see, particularly with regards to gastrointestinal problems, is first of all that surgeons and oncologists looking after cancer patients should recognize these problems and then that we should set up links with gastroenterologists and that some gastroenterologists should take a particular interest in this area because what we do know is from those that small number of gastroenterologists who have made this a major interest they can make a really big difference to patients quality of life. Well, this is obviously a very important topic, and I I thank you for joining us today in our discussion. Thank you very much. 
I'd now like to introduce Professor Jane Marr, Clinical Oncologist at Mount Vernon Cancer Centre in Hillingdon Hospital in London, UK, and Chief Medical Officer to Macmillan Cancer Support. Again, Professor Marr, you were central to the commissioning of this article, and indeed this topic is one of your key areas of interest. Um, from your perspective, what are the main issues surrounding this topic? Okay, so I was chair of the National Cancer Survivorship Initiative um, Consequences of Treatment Workgroup, and it became very quickly very clear that gastrointestinal problems after treatment of pelvic cancer was a real issue for many of the patients who were part of the group. And therefore, it seemed that um, this was going to be a priority for our work stream. And as a result of this, this is why we prior prioritized commissioning guidance uh, from gastroenterologists for the management of these issues. So how would you like to see clinical services change to accommodate the needs of cancer survivors? And what's the role of the gastroenterologist within this? I think there are a, a number of things that need to change. Um, oncologists need to be giving more information about the consequences of treatment and then some really excellent information freely available both from Macmillan and on the Choices website. Patients need to feel it's okay to report problems, particularly urgency and urge incontinence, which have emerged as very important issues. Primary care physicians need to identify the problems and refer people to gastroenterologists. In fact, one of the main drives for this particular guidance came from a G, the Macmillan GP group who said this was the most important thing that they needed to manage the patients that they saw. Gastroenterologists need to see value and recognize that they have a key role in managing these problems. And I think the particular issue is recognizing that there may be several different diagnoses for symptoms after pelvic radiotherapy, all of which require recognition and treatment, but that if this is done systematically, people will improve. Finally, we need commissioners to actually commission the services which are required. Is this a worldwide issue, and how are these issues addressed outside the UK? I think it is a worldwide issue. I've been interested in this area since the early 1980s and was involved in some of the European work associated with it. And um, there's no doubt um, that as more people live following cancer, there will be uh, treatment-related problems. And radiation therapy and surgery are going to be key um, treatments, and I think there is no evidence that uh, treatment-related consequences are disappearing. I think the first step always in any country is to identify that there's a problem. And the recent UK Patient Reported Outcome Measures survey included four power questions which were identified through the late effects group, which are sufficient to identify the patients who need to be seen by gastroenterologists. So I think the first step internationally is making sure they're aware what problem they actually have, which will drive um, a response. Next, I'd like to move on to speak with Professor Jonathan Rhodes, who's Professor of Gastroenterology at the University of Liverpool and current President of the British Society of Gastroenterology. Um, welcome to the discussion today. Um, from your perspective, what are the main issues surrounding this topic? Well, firstly, I'm delighted to be involved in this and uh, delighted that the British Society of Gastroenterology were asked to help um, commission these, these guidelines. Um, I think these guidelines have helped um, identify an area that's 
very important, uh, both in terms of its impact on patient quality of life and in terms of the numbers of, of uh, patients that are involved. Uh, and yet, um, I think, is, is hardly on the horizon at all for uh, many uh, practicing clinicians, particularly um, perhaps gastroenterologists. So that there are uh, several issues. Firstly, I think it's becoming increasingly clear that many patients who have apparently had curative treatment for cancers uh, in the abdomen, various cancers, either from the GI tract or um, uh, prostate or ovaries, for example, are, are continuing to have really quite serious um, symptoms as a consequence of their uh, cancer treatment. Um, and by and large, because the cancer has been seen to be cured, those symptoms are often overlooked and, and just sort of covered up by reassurance uh, and, and the overall good prognosis. For um, so uh, there are several things that need doing. Firstly, gastroenterologists need training um, in how to manage these problems when they come to them, because currently we see these patients really very rarely. Um, and really in parallel with that, the patients need to be identified and transferred across and appropriate uh, clinic time uh, commissioned uh, to, to allow them to be seen satisfactorily. But that leads on to my next question. Um, as a gastroenterologist, how do you think these guidelines will impact on clinical practice? Well, I think they'll do two things. They, they will uh, highlight the problem to gastroenterologists, many of whom may not really have been aware that this was much of a problem. Um, and secondly, they'll, they'll give um, uh, good current evidence as how best uh, to uh, manage the problems that result, for example, from chemotherapy and radiotherapy. Um, a, a third uh, benefit one hopes is that they may stimulate clinical research because it's quite clear that in some instances, radiation proctitis, for example, um, the, the, the evidence um, to support various management strategies is really rather uh, slim at present and there's a need for a lot more clinical research. So how can we ensure as gastroenterologists that cancer survivors in the UK are assessed and treated appropriately? For example, do you think this topic could be incorporated into the training curriculum and are there any plans to do that? Um, there is already an oncology module as um, a, a, an option for um, gastro trainees and uh, that's been put into the latest curriculum. So that's quite a new development uh, which we strongly support. Um, there clearly is a need for gastroenterologists in training uh, to have a, a really good understanding of uh, not only the diagnosis but the management options available um, for um, patients with GI cancer. Um, I suspect that um, as part of that training up till now, there hasn't been much of a focus on the GI problems associated with um, treatment for non-GI cancers, uh, you know, radiotherapy for prostate cancer, for example, uh, and that needs somehow to be put in. Uh, one, one, this is a bit of a circular uh, argument um, because um, uh, the, the underlying problem is that these patients, I think, are not being uh, referred across to gastroenterologists. So there's, unless the trainees get to see them in gastroenterology clinics, uh, of course, it'll be difficult for them to become adequately uh, trained in their management. So um, both things need to happen simultaneously, uh, an increased awareness of the need to train um, and an in increased awareness of the need to identify these patients and refer them across appropriately. Okay, well, this is obviously an important topic and um, has uh, 
led to a lot of discussion uh, recently. So thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us today. Fine. Thank you very much for asking me. Finally, I'd like to welcome Dr. Jarvis Andreev to discuss the guidelines further. He's consultant gastroenterologist in pelvic radiation disease at the Royal Marsden Hospital in London, UK. Um, welcome today. Um, we've already discussed the background to this topic and appreciate the increasing prevalence in patient referral to our clinical service, which mirrors the advances in cancer therapy and increasing cancer survival. This is clearly an issue that we all confront in our daily cl clinical practice. I'd like to discuss the main topics highlighted in the guidelines further today. So first of all, the guidelines separate acute from chronic gastrointestinal side effects of cancer treatment. Can you just briefly outline the main acute issues we may be involved with and the key issues for us to, to, to consider? Well, thanks, Mary. I, th I think for gastroenterologists, the most important thing to remember and to understand is that the nature of cancer treatment has really changed. And many patients are now going to be on treatment which lasts for many months or even years. And often they're receiving lots of different treatments, sometimes at the same time. And so it's going to become in inevitable that these patients start to run into problems when they're long way from home and will appear on our ward rounds or on our takes because they've been admitted acutely. And the, the, the really, the very biggest issue is that patients, while they're having these very complicated treatments, don't always know the exact details of the treatments they're having. So when we developed these guidelines, we felt that there were four really key points that gastroenterologists needed to bear in mind. First of all, when they saw patients like this, they had to have a very, very low threshold for getting early oncological advice. For example, in the last year, more than 25 new biological agents to treat cancer have been introduced. And there is no possibility that you can have up-to-date information about those without seeking advice. Secondly, when patients are admitted, particularly neutropenic patients, are at risk of two uh, very significant pathogens. One is cytomegalovirus and the other one is C. difficile. And unless these conditions are treated very rapidly, often neutropenic patients can develop fulminant colitis with a very high risk of dying. So gastroenterologists need to be aware of this and be prepared to arrange the investigations almost as an emergency and institute treatment often empirically. Thirdly, Cancer and a lot of the treatments which are used for cancer induce a hypocoagulable state. So patients are at very high risk of two conditions in particular. One is hepatic venoocclusive disease and the other one is of mesenteric infarction. And again, both of these conditions are emergencies and they can't wait till the next day because if they are detected early, a life-threatening disease can be averted by early intervention. And finally, gastroenterologists need to be aware that cancer treatments are very different from inflammatory bowel disease. For example, if you use mesalazine in, in someone with acute radiation-induced colitis or proctitis, it worsens the inflammation. If someone has diarrhea, the natural inclination for gastroenterologist is to scope the patient. But if they're neutropenic, possibly one should consider a CT scan first 
to exclude the possibility of a neutropenic enterocolitis with bacteria in the wall of the colon. So it's the appreciation, essentially, that it's a different condition to our normal gastroenterological practice. Okay, well, you did touch on this, but often we need to perform endoscopic assessment in these patients, and often acutely. So what are the specific issues that we need to remember in that scenario? Well, many of us spend sometimes many hours uh, sitting in multidisciplinary meetings talking about patients with cancer. And often this is at the early stage where the treatments are being decided. But what it emphasizes is that oncology has moved from being a single specialty condition to very much a multidisciplinary approach. And the gastroenterologist needs to become much more integrated with this. So rather than seeing a patient and thinking, well, maybe I should have a go, there is a significant risk of doing harm. And what we need to move to is a much more planned approach to endoscopic assessment and intervention. For example, if as an endoscopist we perforate someone who's got an early tumour, by definition we've converted them to a T4 stage tumour. And that alters their prognosis very significantly. If we're undertaking um, a rash endoscopic uh, assessment in someone who is neutropenic and we perforate them, that is likely to be life-threatening for that patient and the risks of surgery are very high. The normal appearance may be different. So in someone with C. diff colitis, pseudomembranes are produced by white cells. In a neutropenic patient, there may not be white cells. So one has to think very carefully, are you going to biopsy or not biopsy? The, maybe we need in some of these patients to do a different diagnostic approach. How many of us would routinely do a duodenal aspirate in someone with upper GI symptoms? I suspect not very many, but in a cancer patient who has persistent symptoms, an upper GI duodenal aspirate might well define uh, small bowel bacterial overgrowth, which would then settle their treatment, uh, settle their symptoms if the appropriate treatment was given. So really what we need to do is adopt a different approach because these patients have a different set of problems. Okay, can I move on now to the chronic GI side effects of cancer therapy? And can you outline the scale of the problem for us? Again, I think that many gastroenterologists who are listening to this podcast would be surprised at the number of affected patients. In the UK, uh, there are somewhere in the order of 4,000 patients diagnosed every year with new onset Crohn's disease. Every hospital in the UK will have a gastroenterologist who says that their special interest is Crohn's disease. And yet in the UK, there are 8,000 patients every year who are in serious trouble after pelvic radiotherapy. Uh, but they're having exactly the same symptoms as someone with Crohn's disease, diarrhea, bleeding, fistulae, pain. Uh, and yet how many hospitals in the UK would have a specialist who says, yes, they know exactly what to do with these people with radiation-induced toxicity. And overall, the number of new patients in the UK with inflammatory bowel disease is of the order of 15,000 a year. And there are exactly the same number of patients with chronic symptoms uh, arising as a result of their cancer treatments. 
But the data suggests that while a, a new patient with inflammatory bowel disease will see their consultant or their GP seven times in the first year of diagnosis, less than one in five of the people with chronic GI symptoms resulting from cancer treatment ever get to see a specialist. So I'm not saying that patients with IBD should be downgraded or less important. They deserve the fantastic care that they're now getting. But there's another group which is equally big, who have equally troublesome symptoms, which are also amenable to treatment, who currently are not being seen. Okay, well, let's discuss one or two of the commoner scenarios that we, we, we often encounter in clinic. And certainly one of the common pathologies is rectal bleeding from radiation-induced telangiectasia following pelvic radiation, as you, as you mentioned. Can you speak through the treatment strategies that are available for this, including the evidence behind them? Uh, yes. Uh, rectal bleeding, which arises from these telangiectasia after radiotherapy, arises secondary to ischemia. And the very most important principle for any gastroenterologist to remember, because we're not very familiar with dealing with patients who have got incipient ischemia, is that any intervention in these patients and any biopsy in these patients is potentially quite dangerous. In addition, we know that up to half of all people who have had radiotherapy, they, they will have telangiectasia and will have some bleeding, that a great a number of the patients who present to hospital with problems uh, as a result of bleeding, the bleeding is not in fact due to the telangiectasia. So there is a point approach really which gastroenterologists should consider adopting when they see these patients. The first thing is they need to assess the patient appropriately. And often patients are subjected to colonoscopy, while in fact all they're getting is bright red rectal bleeding and possibly initially could be assessed with much less trauma to the patient, much less risk to the patient with flexible sigmoidoscopy. So we need to think very carefully about that. Secondly, many of the patients will be referred with a letter uh, which says they have got bleeding but doesn't talk about other GI symptoms. And while there are some patients who have bleeding alone, most people who have bleeding after radiotherapy have bleeding, but they also have quite disturbed bowel function. And the bowel function may be disturbed for many reasons, but if you can optimize the bowel function so that people haven't got frequency of 10 times a day and urgency, uh, then often the bleeding reduces very significantly. The third point is that in many patients who will be referred with bleeding, if you talk to them, they will, they'll worry about what the cause for the bleeding is, but in fact, the bleeding is not affecting their quality of life. The blood is not coming out onto their clothes. It's not stopping them doing anything. They're not incontinent in the blood. And if the bleeding is not affecting their quality of life, these patients probably do not need an intervention what they need to do is have a proper assessment, be told the cause, explained the natural history of the bleeding, and then uh, reassured that they do not need any treatment. If the bleeding is such, uh, so significant that they are running into problems, I suppose the fourth step would be to consider, are they on, on anticoagulants? Are they on SSRI antidepressants, which might be potentiating the bleeding? The fifth step, if the bleeding is significant, would then be to consider medical therapy. And there are only two 
treatments which have been shown in randomized trials to be useful. One is with sucralfate enemas, and a, a two gram sucralfate enema made up with tap water uh, to 50 mils inserted into the rectum twice a day. Uh, in trials has been shown to be very helpful in reducing or controlling bleeding, but very soon after the sucralfate enemas stop, the underlying problem remains and the bleeding often restarts. The other medical treatment which has been suggested in trial to be of benefit is 28 days of treatment with metronidazole. Again, clinicians need to be a little bit careful of that because of the risk of long-term metronidazole causing peripheral neuropathy. And some of these patients have already got peripheral neuropathy as a result of the chemotherapy they've had with their, for their cancer. And the final step, if the bleeding continues to be a nuisance, is to consider a disease-modifying therapy. And at the moment, there are three uh, possible options. The only one with a, a significant uh, evidence base in a clin with clinical trials is hyperbaric oxygen treatment. Uh, this is very time-consuming. This is an, uh, involves the patient traveling to a hyperbaric oxygen unit, having daily treatment for eight weeks. It's extremely expensive. It costs £10,000 for a course of treatment. Um, but the evidence suggests that it has a, quite a high success rate together with a very low risk of significant problems. Uh, most gastroenterologists would consider first-line treatment would be with uh, argon plasma coagulation. And I would caution gastroenterologists to be uh, very careful if they use this treatment. Essentially, APC is a thermal therapy. And what you're doing is you're using a thermal therapy in an ischemic tissue. And the risk is that you cause ulceration or stricturing or worsen bleeding to the degree that it is significantly unhelpful and leaves the patient with a different problem, which is sometimes worse than the original problem. And certainly if you read the literature, the, the published data suggests there is a serious complication rate of 7% if you use argon plasma coagulation mm. for uh, rectal bleeding in patients with radiation-induced enteropathy. Uh, the final treatment uh, would be the use of intrarectal formalin. Uh, the long-term follow-up data of formalin is very scanty. That can give, be used endoscopically, as described by Sue Cullen in a paper in APT from Reading, or it can be done sometimes uh, under general anaesthetic. Um, but those are the three disease-modifying treatments. So again, I come back to a kind of theme of this podcast is there's a great potential to do harm. So don't just have a go. Think very carefully about what is best for the patient before you start and make sure it's a mutual discussion with the patient. Well, thank you for going through that very succinctly. And I'd like to move on now to the upper GI tract because another frequent cause of referral is dysphagia or other upper GI symptoms such as nausea and vomiting. And can you go through the main points or considerations for this and how we should approach these patients? Okay, again, uh, doctors and patients may have very different aims when they come and see you with uh, the, 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 their symptoms of dysphagia or nausea and vomiting. But the patient will always, always be anxious whether this uh, represents tumour recurrence. And so... Uh, it may be appropriate that patients are investigated 
either with cross-sectional imaging, CT scans, uh, together with endoscopy. Uh, clearly, acid reflux is a, is a very frequent problem, and, but most of these patients will have already had a trial of a proton pump inhibitor. Perhaps which, what is very commonly forgotten and a profound cause of nausea is bile reflux, both into the stomach or into the esophagus, which sometimes responds extremely well to sucralfate and or a promotility agent such as domperidone. Uh, so it's very helpful when uh, endoscoping these patients to make a routine comment whether there is significant bile reflux, because it may well be that the oncologist uh, isn't aware of the potential of bile reflux to cause these symptoms. A second extremely common cause for upper GI symptoms, including increased reflux, including increased heartburn, nausea, vomiting, uh, which is often forgotten, is also small bowel bacterial overgrowth. And there aren't any good uh, diagnostic tools which are absolutely reliable. Some of us use breath tests. Some of us use duodenal aspirates. Some of us are just given... Uh, empirical trials of antibiotics, but small bowel bacterial overgrowth is so commonly the cause of GI symptoms in patients after cancer treatment that perhaps when we scope these patients, we should, if they are symptomatic, routinely do a, do a duodenal aspirate, rather like we do helicobacter, uh, uh, clotest, uh, in a young person uh, who we were scoping. The, the, the final thing which I think we're not very good at uh, in these patients are those who have dysmotility as a result of either surgical or radiotherapeutic or chemotherapy intervention uh, and people who have poor gastric emptying and in those uh, patients often acid suppression and uh, bile reflux suppression is important but a combination of promotility agents low-dose paroxetine together with low-dose erythromycin, often given as a syrup because the absorption is better, together with domperidone suppositories, perhaps because, again, absorption is enhanced, uh, given half an hour before eating can be incredibly effective. Okay, just staying on the theme of upper GI tract side effects, can you offer us some advice on the management of radiotherapy-induced esophageal stricturing? Okay, well, I come back to a theme of this podcast. Um, do no harm. Before you intervene in these patients, I feel that uh, a multidisciplinary discussion should take place. Is there any possibility that there's still tumour? And so rather than go on to dilate someone, should they be reassessed with CT scan and or a PET scan before the time of that dilatation? Secondly, if one is going to go ahead with the dilatation, the BSG have previously published extremely good guidelines on how they should be done, but this is hazardous. There, there, there's a high risk of harming the patient. So it should never be done without an experienced endoscopist present and be very cautious. It's much better to bring back the patient after two weeks and repeat the dilatation rather than to get into trouble by trying to be, do too much in one go. Okay. Um, the paper also highlights some of the important research questions to be asked around this topic. Um, can you just go through some of these, please, and outline any ongoing research that's gone into this area at present? Okay. 
Well, there are two major trials uh, ongoing in the UK at the moment. There's the HOT2 trial, which is a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial of hyperbaric oxygen for people who have got mild to moderate GI symptoms after previous pelvic radiotherapy, um, which have not responded to optimal gastroenterological intervention. Uh, this double-blind trial is going to be very important. It has already randomized approximately 60 patients. It is open till June, and if you have patients who uh, would consider taking part in this, in this trial of disease-modifying therapy, please do refer them. It's being run from the Royal Marsden Hospital in London, uh, but it's a national trial, and seven hyperbaric units around the country are taking part. There's a second trial, the ORBIT trial, Optimizing Radiation Bowel Injury Therapy, which has recently closed. It's randomized 218 patients, and it's investigating whether doing something is better than not doing anything, whether nurse-led care can be as effective as gastroenterological-led care, and the economic uh, costs and benefits of intervention in these patients. And I'm confident that this trial will show that there is a significant benefit for patients. There are a number of very important topics in gastrointestinal oncology, which should have resonance, uh, resonance with any gastroenterologist who's interested in benign diseases as well. Perhaps one of the most neglected areas of research in the GI tract is the fibrosis of the GI tract. So problems which occur very markedly in patients with scleroderma, but after Crohn's surgery and people with pouch disease, but also in much larger numbers in patients who have got radiation-induced injury. And radiation-induced injury is a very interesting model of uh, luminal fibrosis. Uh, for the research, it should be fascinating because you know the moment when the disease is going to start. People have normal tracks before radiation start, starts and the fibrosis is progressive from that point on. So I would hope that uh, funding could be found to develop markers of luminal fibrosis to look at the pathological process and most excitingly of all to look for uh, drug interventions of which there are many potential ones which have been shown in animals which possibly could uh, stop fibrosis progressing or actually uh, make it improve. I think the second very major issue in research are, is, the, is one of nutritional intervention in cancer patients. Malnutrition is very common. Malnutrition leads to a poorer outcome. There is very limited research into what interventions may be beneficial. And these could be done very easily and led by gastroenterologists. One could go on with the nutritional things, which patients need pegs and at what point and there's a big controversy and again gastroenterologists could answer this very easily if they were more involved with the head and neck doctors do we put in pegs early or late for people with uh, head and neck cancers having chemo radiation and that's a very very important uh, question because many of these patients will be long-term dependent on enteral support and if we had fed them earlier would that have meant that there'd be less muscle atrophy and they could have uh, not needed enteral support, enteral nutritional support. Thirdly, because as, as you said previously, 
radiation-induced bleeding is a common presenting problem to gastroenterologist and it's very important to have some decent trials looking at the disease modifying therapies formalin apc and hyperbaric oxygen and how do they compare which patients should they be offered to and when should they be used uh, there are no studies of no significant studies looking at the reasons why patients get diarrhea during chemotherapy and this is very important because lots of people have their chemotherapy stopped or dose reduced because of diarrhea. There is a single study saying that 10% of patients having 5-fluorouracil will get lactose intolerance, but there's not a single study of bile acid malabsorption or the frequency of small bowel bacterial overgrowth in patients having chemotherapy. And this is something the gastroenterologist could do very easily. And finally, I come back to the issue of small bowel bacterial overgrowth which again should have resonance for normal gastroenterologists because the question is, is it, is it common in IBS? Again, we are desperately in need of better diagnostic tests for small bowel bacterial overgrowth because all the current tests are significantly flawed. Okay, well, moving on to the final question now. Um, this is obviously... a. Uh, uh, a very important issue and um, there's potential for us harming the patients we've gone over this and it's important for us to increase awareness of these issues within the gastrointestinal community and um, so there's several points for us to consider and they are highlighted within a clinician's beware box at the end of the manuscript which is very useful but can you just go through some of those bullet points as a last reminder of what the specifics are for, for this group of patients I, I think the real key is that when these patients come to see us, they are different from our routine patients with benign diseases, and they need to be thought about in different ways. Secondly, when they come to see us, they often come with a number of symptoms. And unlike some of the other groups of patients we see who have just got a duodenal ulcer or are a celiac, these patients often have multiple causes for their symptoms because they have had system, systemic treatment which has knocked out multiple physiological functions. So often in these patients, empirical treatments simply do not work. And that doesn't mean the patient is untreatable, but it may mean that you have not identified the problems that they've really got. And what you need to do is to be more systematic and do the test to be sure what you're treating. Secondly, I think you have to be very aware that in patients with altered immune uh, systems which follow cancer treatment, different problems can present but all present with the same symptoms. So it goes back to the fact that it's very difficult to be empirical in your approach and you have to be systematic and try and sort things out. Thirdly, problems often arise because we don't quite ask the patients the right questions. For example, steatorrhea is very common in, in patients after cancer and is due to a completely different set of causes to diarrhea. And yet, apart from gastroenterologists, very few clinicians seem to be able to differentiate between steatorrhea and diarrhea. And certainly patients will not unless you ask them very carefully. Two other points, really, is that 
and one can't emphasize it too much, is that radiotherapy causes ischemia. You're in a very hazardous situation when a patient has had radiotherapy. Be very careful when you decide you're going to biopsy or not biopsy. We know that if you biopsy the anterior wall, uh, anterior rectal wall in someone who's had brachytherapy, you have approximately a 2% chance of causing a non-healing recto-urethral uh, uh, fistula, which is absolutely miserable for the patient. So don't just have a go, think about it. And ask, ask your oncological colleagues for their advice before doing something. Well, when I come to the end of the podcast, Dr. Andrea, thank you very much for speaking to me today and discussing this topic. And uh, I'd also like to take the opportunity to thank all the speakers for their time and for sharing their expertise with us. Thank you very much. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.